But what could prepare us for the tragic event that would ultimately occur? Would they be ready after a three-year internship with the master? Or would they forget it all and go back to what they were doing before they actually met him? Would they return to fishing and doing other odds and ends that they knew that could sustain their life? So with the hundreds of people that had joined Jesus' ranks, uh, now only a handful remain. Hundreds and hundreds of people had followed Jesus. Now as he makes his way towards the cross, only a few faithful remain. Face it, it, it does not sound like a critical force that could change the world. Jesus and 12 men, how can they change the world? Sounds like a lot of talk and great ideas without any type of crowdsourcing. But what about us? Jesus, he saved us. Now what? Many of us in this room have been interning with Jesus for more than three years. Many of us have been following him and learning of him uh, for even decades now. But the intimacy in which he requires, the fact that Jesus wants to engage in us and with us, uh, that which he requires, it is often... Here, have with the Lord is nothing more than a long-distance relationship. You know what I mean? Uh, that I'm going to be in relationship with you, uh, but we're just going to uh, every now and then talk over the telephone. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus wants more. Amen? Jesus wants more of us. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And let's begin very quickly reading in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told him, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? 
He said to them, It is one of the twelve, a one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. So Jesus, he took the bread. Jesus took the bread. As the Passover meal begins, uh, Jesus emphasizes two aspects of the Passover meal. Now, I, I know uh, that some of us may think that the Passover meal is nothing but the bread and the wine. But notice in the passage it says that as they were eating, Jesus did what? Jesus took bread. Uh, this infers... There were some other items on the table uh, for that meal of Passover. Uh, so if you think that Passover is nothing but uh, bread and wine, uh, you are mistaken. So if you're unfamiliar, then know that there were other items on that table. They were eating other things. They were eating bitter herbs. They were eating lamb, unleavened bread, and also wine. In fact, if you turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 7, Exodus chapter 12, verse 7, and the passage reads, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread. And bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. So uh, this activity from which we know happened during the time of Passover in which uh, the death angel passed over anyone's home that had the blood of the lamb over the lintel and that uh, this memorial that it continues even today. In fact, in most households, most Jewish households, they will continue this uh, every single year as a matter of fact. Uh, but Jesus, uh, he, uh, in our passage, he focuses only on two aspects. And they are what? The bread and the wine. So Jesus, uh, even though we can imagine uh, that the bitter herbs can represent uh, the suffering that Jesus went through. Uh, we can imagine how uh, that, the, that, that very flesh of that animal represents uh, literally the flesh of Jesus Christ that was eaten up by his adversaries. We can imagine that. But Jesus only focuses on the bread and the wine. In fact, uh, even if you were to go to a Jewish wedding ceremony today, 
Uh, two things that always happen. Uh, they will have both the bread and the wine. And you will look at the Jewish wedding ceremony and think they're serving communion. Uh, but the fact remains that uh, the bread and wine represents the produce and the fruit of the earth as they recognize the Lord God. But when Jesus takes the bread, it represents himself. It represents Jesus Christ who alone is able to minister on behalf of all of mankind. Says here, says Jesus, he took bread. Uh, that uh, word in the original language is lambano, which means to take. So in order to take something, one need first only to decide which one out of many to choose. Even though Jesus was uh, a God in the flesh, Right? He was a, a man, but the man God, nevertheless, that he walked on this earth as you and I do today. Even though it was no choice, God still decided who he would take, who he would choose. So in order to take, one has to first make up their minds which one to take. As an example, uh, when you go to the store to buy bananas, uh, you first look at the fruit uh, to make sure that they are yellow and not green or bruised. Because you know that green fruit, it is not ready for consumption. Whereas bruised fruit, it is undesirable because it has many imperfections in it. So we are selective, uh, even in the process, of buying bananas. This process is true whether you're speaking of bananas, uh, whether you're talking about you're shopping for shoes, uh, shopping for phones or cars or anything else you imagine. You know how you do when you go to the store, right? Because if you find that one little imperfection, what do you do uh, when, you, uh, when you approach the salesman? Well, even though that you say this item is new, uh, and I really, really want this. I want you to notice that it is, what, imperfect. Or that it has a scratch or mark or some other type of thing going on with it. So because it is imperfection, uh, it is imperfect, and I know you want to get rid of it, I'm thinking that you need to take some money off of it, you see. And oftentimes a salesperson will say either yay or nay. And they're like, what do you have in mind? And you uh, begin your bothering, you, you begin your negotiations, trying to bring the price down. Why? Because that item is not perfect. So as Jesus took, or as he selected the bread, it represents himself who was selected for the role of redeemer of the whole world. There were many people who could have been selected or taken, but only Jesus had the spiritual standing. Only Jesus had the moral standing. Only Jesus had the perfection. Only Jesus had the authority to be right for the job. So as Jesus took the bread, 
It represents the fact that he was selected and chosen by God. But we can't help but also to see the fact that those who are in Christ are also chosen to a degree. Amen? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Says this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be what? Holy and what? Blameless before him. So it says that even as God did what? He did what for us? He chose us. So does that mean that those folks who are not going to heaven, that they're not chosen? Yeah, in one sense, you're absolutely right. So then what difference does it make for me to live our life? If God goes around and chooses who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, then why even go out and evangelize? But understand that the chosenness of an individual, uh, that it is not wrapped up within the individual, that it is all wrapped up in Christ. Look at it again, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us where? In him. Who is the in him? That is uh, Christ Jesus, right? Uh, the, the fact that we saw and we understand that it is Jesus who was chosen to be the rescuer of the, or the redeemer of the world. It is him who was chosen. So if we find ourselves in Christ, amen, that makes us all what? Chosen. That then means that we are also chosen. So in him, those are the two operative words. Well, yes, on the other hand, we can also agree that within God's foreknowledge, because he is omniscient, he knows every single thing that there is to know. And he knows every single possibility. He knows that what can happen. <clears throat> Jesus knows that <clears throat> if you decide to make a right turn or a left turn today, he knows exactly which one you're going to do, while you yourself, you're sitting there trying to decide. Am I going to go to this store or, or, or to that store? As you get up in the morning, you're trying to decide what kind of clothes you're going to put on. But guess what? Jesus, God, he already knows. Because of his foreknowledge, he knows every single possibility in your life. Think about it. Jesus knows whether or not you're going to scratch your head right now. Jesus, he knows whether or not if I'm going to wipe my brow at this very moment. It's like, well, how can he know? Because when you, when you are God, you can know all these things. He knows the trip you're going to take. He knows who you're going to marry. He knows who you're going to be angry with. He knows who you're going to be friends with. He knows all these things because if he did not know, he would not be omniscient. And because God is omniscient, if he's not omniscient, that means he would not be God. But throughout all of this, we should understand at the basic level that it was Jesus who is chosen. Amen? It is Jesus who was chosen. So the pastor says that Jesus, that he took bread. 
And then Jesus, he blessed the bread. Again, Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Jesus uh, took the bread and then he blessed it. Well, what does it mean to bless someone or something? The prayer is that uh, there would be some type of transfer of goodness uh, from God to the thing or the person that we desire to bless. Amen? Uh, so when we say that God bless you, what are we saying? Are we just saying have a good day? Well, I know some of you, you are saying that. You're just saying, have a good day. And I want to warn you, if you want to say, have a good day, then you tell somebody to do what? Have a good day. You don't have to put God's name in it. But if you want to bless them, if you want uh, some type of goodness that belongs from God to transfer from him to them, and then you say what? God bless you. This is not just a saying. It's not type, some type of trite saying. Uh, this is a prayer. So if you uh, say God bless you and you don't mean it and you really mean have a good day, then I believe you are taking the Lord God's name in vain. So if you want to say bless you, then say what? Bless you. If you want to say have a good day, then say what? Have a good day. You don't have to feel obligated to tell someone, God bless you because you're in the church. But if you live on this earth, as I do, and you know the struggles that people go through, you know the ups and downs, the ins and the outs, and the attacks and the successes that people have in life, that we need to tell people all the time, God bless you. Because as sure as you live on this planet, as sure as you will have troubles on this revolving ball. Now, uh, this desire to bless another is not based off of wishful thinking, but off of the knowledge that the one who is able to pull it off, Jesus Christ, not only is he omniscient, but he is also omnipotent. He has all power. So if one were to bless us or had the ability to bless us, it would be God. Amen? So Jesus, he now blesses the very bread which represents what? His body. Jesus knew what he had to go through. Yet he was not apprehensive about entering into that ministry of suffering for the whole world. So as Jesus took the bread, and he blessed the bread, in essence, he was blessing his ministry. So he was aptly able to bless that bread and even bless the very process which would be sanctioned and sanctified by God the Father. Amen. So if Jesus was able to take select or choose you, then know also that Jesus is able to bless you as well. Amen? If Jesus was able to choose you in Christ, did you get this? He's also able 
to bless you at the same time. Do you know that you are blessed in the Lord? Or are you one of those who just think that you live this life and everything is just by happenstance? I remember we were, um, as, as Terrence was preparing to leave and, and uh, to, to, to go out of town, and I think he had uh, misplaced his license. They were, I forget how long they were looking for his license. I think maybe a day or two, however long it was, they couldn't find it. And I was sitting back and I wasn't looking for anything. And literally, it was getting really close. I said, I said, well, man, you can't, you can't drive from Chicago all the way down to Oklahoma with no license. Are you crazy? He's like, but well, I've been looking everywhere. I've been looking everywhere. I can't find it. I can't find it. So I just sat down. And then uh, at the last minute, I said, did you find it yet? He says, no. I said, let's pray. And we prayed. And literally, in about 10 minutes, God blessed him, and he was able to find his license. And somehow, it had fallen out of something, and it was on its way to the garbage. But God had, had literally, he had blessed him to answer his prayers. And you better believe, they had been looking for hours, and I did not lend one finger to help. Amen? Can you say, yeah, no, I didn't. I just looked at him. I just let him go. I let him go. And then, like I said, when he finished, I said, you ready to pray now? He's like, okay, okay, all right. I said, let's pray that God helps you find this thing because you know you need to go down and you know you need to have that license. So know that you are blessed simply because you are in Christ Jesus. And know that uh, you must remember that he will bless his people. Amen. Not only have you been blessed, but also know that you will be blessed. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Some of you know this passage very well now. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There it is again, uh, those uh, two operative words. How have you been blessed? Have you been blessed on your own accord? How have you been blessed? Uh, how have we been blessed? What are the two operative words? How? In Christ. In Christ. What is the vehicle of our blessings? In Christ. Christ, what is the vehicle of us being chosen? Where? In Christ. So Jesus, he took the bread. He blessed it. And he broke it. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. It was indeed Christ's body that was broken. 
Jesus was scourged. They placed him, they placed a crown of thorns on his head. They drove nails in his hands and through his feet and they pierced him in the side with a spear. This is the body of a person that was severely broken for us, that Jesus was brutalized. But did all those things actually happen to him? John chapter 20, verse 25. John chapter 20, verse 25. Thomas said of hearing of Jesus being alive, <clears throat> Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I believe some people uh, have the same thought about process about heaven. Unless I actually uh, step my right foot into heaven, Unless I actually get a chance to sit down uh, when I am in heaven, only at that time I will believe. But other than that, I will never believe. But Jesus says that you believe because you have seen. He says, blessed is the one who believe and has what? Have not seen. Some people today will not accept Jesus Christ as being real. And neither will they accept the fact that he was crucified. They want to see Jesus for themselves before they believe. But the, uh, the problem is that you may not get a chance to see him. You may not get a chance to touch him. Even though we call Thomas doubting Thomas, uh, Jesus was alive. Uh, Thomas knew that Jesus was alive. And Thomas knew that Jesus had what? He had been crucified. And Jesus had been killed. Thomas knew all that. That was a fact. He was just trying to get over the hurdle of the fact that Jesus was actually alive. So Jesus' body, as Thomas would attest to all of us today, that it had been broken for us. And concerning brokenness, God wants us to come to him broken and with contrite hearts. God does not want pride. He wants humility. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be chosen, that he requires you to be broken. And I would also like to say this as well. For some of us, it's very difficult for God to get through to you. I'm going to be very honest. And God, he sends his messengers and he sends his messages over and over and over again. And this is the lesson that I've learned in life. That if you can't handle the messages from his messengers, eventually God will take a two by four and smack you right in the top of your head. It will be no mistaken uh, that God will put you in the place where you can't help but to hear his voice. Yes, that time uh, when I was lying in ICU, finally, all my busy schedule, it was gone. 
Finally, I couldn't, I could not answer my phone. And at that time, I couldn't even answer my pager. You imagine that I had a phone and a pager. It was a nice pager too, man. <laughs> couldn't go here and there. Finally, I was in a place that God could speak to me. I was broken. So Jesus, he took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And now he gave it. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. This is the supreme sacrifice that one could possibly give to another, and that is of their life. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And at any given point in the process of giving a gift to another, you know, we always have an opportunity to change our minds, and we see this in, in small children a lot, and I see this, see this in adults as well. When you decide to give a gift that uh, you say, well, you know what, uh, I may no longer want to give it anymore. Or you may decide that, you know, that person is no longer worthy to receive the gift. Or maybe you begin to think to yourself, maybe I'm giving too much. Maybe I'm not as generous as I thought I was. Or maybe you thought, I want to give, but I'm going to get someone else along with me to share in the responsibility. So therefore, the giving is not going to be as hard. In any case, there's an opportunity to reverse that decision of giving before it becomes finalized. Jesus, on the other hand, when he gave, he gave what? He gave it all. There's an old hymn that I remember that's coming on top of my head right now. It goes something like, Jesus gave it all. Remember that song? All to him what? I owe. You remember that song? Yes. Jesus never thought he was not worthy of giving the gift of himself. How could we deem to think we are perfect for us to begin with? Because the first criterion of establishing whether or not one can give a sacrificial offering to God is that we must be totally perfect concerning redemption, that is. Jesus never thought that he could give too much because this is the, the reason why he came in the first place. Jesus did not even decide to split his giving with another person. Jesus did not say, you know what, I know that I was called to give my life, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to take my life up to almost death, and then I'm going to bring somebody else in to have them to take their life almost to death, and these two almost to death will end up being a full sacrifice. Jesus did not split his responsibility amongst others. Jesus gave it all so that all would have an opportunity to be redeemed. He had the whole world in view and redeeming people required nothing 
less than the power of God. The full weight of all the sins of all of us lay on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. But the striking thing we also learn in Christ's giving of himself is that transformation uh, that's in all of us at the same time. As Jesus gives, he calls us to give as well. No, it's not the same. Uh, he's not at this time. You notice what I said, right? Uh, at this time, he's not requiring us to give of our life. But he's requiring for us to give our love to other folks. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How can you do that? When was the last time that you considered another person more significant than yourself? I, I can't do that uh, because I believe uh, that's true because we have not matured to that place yet. One of the things that I have noticed, uh, uh, especially those who are saints of God, as they get older, they begin to understand that principle. You see, when you are younger, the principle that you operate in is me, myself, and I, right? And then we grow up a little bit, right? And then we're forced to give, right? We're forced uh, to do that within our own family, especially when you get married. When you were single, it's like, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And then when you get married, it's all about me and my family. It's all about me and my family. It's all about me and my family. Nobody else. But as you mature, you begin to understand the principles of God's kingdom. You know uh, that God's love is supposed to stretch out even to strangers. Even to strangers. So the idea of communion itself, it becomes offensive to those who are not discerning of the Lord's body. Some people just don't get it. Now turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 52. John chapter 6, verse 52. <clears throat> the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, this doesn't make sense. Is this Jesus talking about cannibalism? Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in 
him. You see, you get it? This is why we can make the connection with in Christ. If we are in Christ, it makes sense because if we are engaged with him, then we know his presence is in us. So therefore, if the presence of Jesus is in us, we know that we are blessed with every spiritual blessings in the spiritual places or in the heavenly places because if Jesus is blessed, then we are blessed because we are in him and he is in us. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. So Jesus says, you eat of this bread and you will live. Right? Whoever feeds on this bread, he says, will do what? Let's read that together. Come on. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. One more time. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, I know a lot of people eating a lot of bread all the days of my life, and I know a lot of folks who are not alive, and they probably ate bread probably from the time that they were kids to the time that they died, so they are not living together. What is Jesus talking about? That bread that came from heaven, that Jesus says that I am, not, not me, but Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. But this is a problem for many people who even consider Jesus as a possible redeemer for themselves because they don't understand who he is. They don't understand what they've done. And because they don't understand what they've done, they don't understand what he's done. And because they don't understand what he's done, they don't understand what they need. And because they don't understand what they need, they don't understand and don't know and don't want what he has. So the response to uh, the teaching of Jesus was that it was too hard. Uh, what Jesus wants us to do, what he requires, is too hard. Right, Mike? They couldn't listen to it. They grumbled and they complained and decided no longer I had enough of this Jesus stuff. Life is too short to spend all my time doing this Jesus stuff. But the main idea in this passage is really not about the Lord's Supper, but more about the communion and the engagement you need to have with Jesus that is in John chapter 6 anyway. But who would have the nerve or the audacity to come and commune with the Lord at his table and not really consider him? Who would come to the Lord's table and not consider the Lord? It would be uh, similar to uh, you invite someone over to your house to have a dinner, amen? And they come to your house, but they decide they don't want to talk to you. That they're going to ignore you all the way. You've taken your time to prepare this delicious meal. Hot and steaming and, and spices and, and, and the smell in the air hopefully is really good. So they come in 
Uh, they don't even acknowledge you. They just go straight to the table and they just start eating. They start eating, chowing down, eating up all the bread, all the macaroni and cheese, all the steak. They eat up everything. And you know, they're drinking all your pop or whatever you get at the table to drink, right? Amen? And then they belch. And then they leave. What would you say about that person? You'd probably tell them, they really don't know me. And you would never, ever invite them back to your house again. Well, most of you won't. You won't, don't want anything to do with them. So when we come to the Lord's table, it is about communing with him. It is about connecting with Jesus Christ. So who would have the nerve? Who would have the audacity to come and commune with the Lord and never ever consider him? That's why Paul says that we need to do what? We need to examine our hearts. He said this is the reason why so many people today that they are dead. This is the reason, he says today, why so many people, uh, uh, that they are sick. Because they have consistently come to the Lord's table, not able to discern the Lord's body, ignoring him. If this is you, you never consider the Lord's body. And this is the reason why, brothers and sisters. That for a child that comes to the Lord's table, they must know what they're doing. This is not just some game that we play. Paul says that if you take of the Lord's table and not able to discern the body, he says you can actually get sick. He says you can actually get ill. Paul says that if you don't correctly discern the Lord's body, that you can die. So your children, if they don't understand this, if they are not properly discern, discerning the Lord's body, then you need to keep this away from them. Amen? Unless you don't care about them, unless you want them uh, to, to leave this planet, unless you want them to get sick and all this other stuff. So if you only come to the Lord's table to get, then basically you're only networking. And networking is different from communing. In the body of Christ, we commune. But in network, we only spend time trying to see what we can get out of a person. And many of you, or some of you, may be on LinkedIn. And you may have uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. You may have hundreds of people. I have hundreds of people on my account. Hundreds of people. People that I know. People that I thought I knew. People that I thought I knew and I never knew. People that I forgot that I actually knew. All these folks, hundreds of my closest best friends. At the end of the day, it's nothing but networking. But Jesus says that when you come to commune, I don't want to network with you. He says, I want to enter into your life. I want you to enter into my life. I want you to commune with me. What does commune mean? Here's a, here's a definition 
a body of people or families living together and sharing everything. Do you share everything with Jesus? Do you live with Jesus? Or is Jesus only your network? You uh, have a problem, you don't have a job, so now it's time to network. You have Jesus' number, so you call him up, right? Uh, call him up, right, and tell him what you want, right? So you call up Jesus and you tell him what you want. Jesus provides that thing for you. Then you're done with Jesus. Guess what? That's a network. Or you tell Jesus, oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, Lord, I'm not doing well, and I need for you to heal me today. And I believe, and I know that you can do it. And Jesus, he heals you, and then you're back out living to de like the devil. You are networking. You are communing. Communing means that for no good reason, you say, thank you, Jesus. No good reason other than you're just living life and you recognize the power and the presence of the Lord and you just say, thank you, Jesus. It means that while you're shopping in the store, you have no other good reason other than to know that Jesus is with you and you say, thank you, Jesus, for your presence. Or you decide to worship every single aspect in your life is full of worship. This is communing with the Lord. And when you get a sense of the presence of the Lord, that he's near you. So unless you are serving yourself communion, there is a greater sense of oneness even in the communing within the body of Christ when we come together. Amen? If you notice that even when we serve communion from down front here and I give to the elders, one thing that you may or may not have noticed is that I even allow them to serve me at the same time. If you are in a position that no one can never serve you, then you are not communing. You are only networking. It is within this uh, idea of closeness of community which extends outside of our immediate family, which draws us together as the body of Christ, right? So here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. Some of us only think that uh, those who are worthy to do X, Y, and Z, that they must be perfect before they can minister to us. But the problem with that is simply this. You yourself are not perfect, and you know you're not. You know that many days that you are not right before God, either because of your relationship or your relationship with someone else. So therefore, while you're standing up on your own high horse, knowing that God is looking at you and he is condemning your actions. So if ever you think that you live in perfection, that no one can minister to you, you are nothing but a big fat hypocrite. Amen? Because God already knows you are imperfect. God is right there when you are arguing with your kids. God is there when he heard you slip of your tongue when you said something to someone else. God knows that you were watching something you had no business watching. God knows all of these things. He knows what's on your phone. He knows your hypocrisy. He knows that you are not entering into the body of Christ, but you are just using the body of Christ. God knows this. 
so within the body of Christ, as we commune with one another, we become family. One idea that I love, I never participated in, however, but I like the idea within the Catholic Church how, uh, maybe they even do it today, how everybody, they drink out of the same cup during communion. And then I remember how uh, uh, when AIDS came on the scene, all of a sudden things change. Some people continue to do it. They used to have two cups, right? Right? And they even reached a point that uh, at one particular place that it was the, the priest who would even put the wafer in your mouth. And some people would say, I don't even want the priest to put the wafer in my mouth. So they'd go up to the priest and they'd do one of these numbers. Let's put it in my hand, but I don't get it because if he had to touch it in the first place, it's just like him putting it in your mouth. Amen? But the idea with communion, if you notice when they were here during the Lord's Supper, when he told them in verse 23 and he took a cup, he took a cup. He didn't take several cups. You see that? Do we see this? He took, what does it say? A cup, one cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. So it wasn't like Jesus had a big pitcher of wine on the table. So all right, Peter, go ahead and just start pouring until overflow. Right? He had a cup, and they all drank of that cup. And this is this idea of coming to the Lord's table, not discerning his body, not coming properly, is, is, is what we have in mind behind Judas Iscariot. This is why he's so treacherous and so dark. That Judas, he sat at the table with the brothers and with Jesus, all the while with ulterior motives at hand. How can you come to the Lord's table knowing you're going to kill him? How can you come to the table knowing that your boys are waiting for him so they can hang him on a cross? How can you do that in good conscience? Oh, I can see Judas now, oh, sitting there, slapping his knee, having a great old time. And then everybody began to say, is it, is it me? Did I do it? Was, it? was it me? Will it be me, Jesus, who betray you? <laughs> 